0: I'm Rose Skeeters, host of From Borderline to Beautiful, a show about hope and recovery for BPD. Hello and welcome to another episode of From Borderline to Beautiful. So today I want to do another episode about devaluation and idealization as it occurs in the lens of borderline personality disorder. So first I just want to define idealization. So idealization is a psychological or a mental process where you can attribute really positive or overly positive qualities to another person. It's like holding them up on a pedestal and exaggerating their positive qualities. Idealization serves a purpose. It reduces anxiety because it protects the person from having emotional conflicts that might emerge in a relationship. So as you know, in the BPD brain, people are all either all good or all bad, right? So, the reason that the BPD brain will sort of create this um, black and white thought pattern about others is because they go back and forth between being independent and being completely dependent. And unfortunately, with all the trauma that occurs in the life of someone with BPD, it's very difficult to rely on either our independence or our dependence. Because at the end of the day, the the, um, core beliefs that make up the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder are things like the world is dangerous and malevolent, or I must have someone I trust that I can turn to and I can't do things on my own. So uh, idealization becomes a strategy to help the person, you know, with BPD to feel that intense closeness and to protect themselves from any process, I'm sorry, problems that that could come up or occur. Now, when a problem does occur, right, an obstacle of sorts, the BPD brain will do what? I'm sure you know this in in terms of splitting, right? All of a sudden, this person that you thought at 2 p.m. was awesome wasn't able to make your 5 p.m. date, so now mm, we can devalue them, right? And when we devalue someone, devaluation, that's when we over-exaggerate the negative qualities of the people that we're in relationship with. So remember that devaluation is also a defense mechanism. It's the opposite of idealization, and it protects or it serves to protect the person with borderline personality disorder or the BPD brain from feeling rejection or having anxiety. It's hard to cope with the stress of an ambivalence in a relationship or to have anxiety caused by ambiguity, meaning if you don't know what the end goal is in the relationship or if you haven't had an experience of solid trust and love, then you might be very uncomfortable and feel anxious with the way it feels to be in a relationship with someone, especially when an obstacle excuse me, or a problem would arise. So devaluation and idealization are two polar opposites. They exist in this black and white dichotomous thinking space, and they are also methods designed to protect the BPD brain. Your brain actually comes to comes to do that, right? Because, you know, the, the idea that I need people and I love people and I want to have good and stable relationships... Directly competes with the idea that everyone hates me and the world isn't trustworthy and everyone's going to leave me. So, when your brain is programmed to look at the world this way, it has to come up with uh, defense mechanisms to protect you from the extreme pain that exists in both of those polar opposites. If the person you're with you put on a pedestal and they're the best person ever, well, then they are held to a very high standard of meeting all of your needs and becoming the savior. But, you know, devaluing that person puts them in a position where they're, you know, they can only be negative because now they've not met some expectation. So an obstacle has been, you know, sort of revealed in the relationship. And remember, interpersonal relationships, they're not going to be without obstacles. Most relationships have uh, disagreements or differing point of views or communication breakdowns, you know, so it's important when you're in an interpersonal relationship that instead of having an obstacle and then, you know, entering into those spaces of devaluing and idealizing an individual you're in a relationship with to learn to take that emotional intensity down by changing your physical state and then recognizing, am I putting this person on a pedestal or am I making this person out to be like somebody who they're not, someone really negative, a monster, someone who would hurt other people? And what's the purpose of that? It does absolutely take guidance to recognize when you're doing these things. And oftentimes the person in, you're in relationship with will be pointing this out. And it's such a painful thing to have to realize, right? Like I'm saying to you, When you devalue someone, you can't handle the anxiety that comes with not knowing whether or not you can trust the person. So instead of learning how to cope with it, you just devalue them and make them out to be negative. That's a hard thing to hear. And it's coming from me, right? So I've struggled with it. I've suffered through it. And so, you know, it's easier to hear. But when it comes from someone that you love, it's very, very difficult to hear those things. So I just wanted to spend some time defining... Um, idealization and devaluation in in the lens or through the lens of borderline personality disorder, and I just want to shift gears a little bit and sort of talk about the role of childhood trauma and growing up in, in an invalidating social environment, whether you perceive the environment to have been invalidating if you're the person that raised the individual with BPD isn't relevant here because people with, you know, borderline personality disorder are highly sensitive individuals born with, you know, um, let's say difficult temperaments or hyperbolic temperaments. And so if in their perception their needs are not met and it's an invalidating social environment, that perception is what we really need to be thinking about right? Because that's the perception that we need to speak to, the perception of the BPD brain. And so if if an individual is, grows up in an environment where they're more prone to have these, this black and white thinking, being more sensitive, and you know they start to develop their sense of self at around the ages of three, four, that's where it starts to emerge, right? And let's say at four years old, the child makes a mistake and believes that they're a failure. And then they, they're yelled at or they're you know sort of given a punishment that's over the top or doesn't match the situation or maybe the parents don't know that this child has borderline personality disorder tendencies or hypersensitive temper tendencies rather so they you know maybe you know kind of isolate him or they move past it so something is missing with the child's ability to get through the mistake or failure in other words and the people raising that child or the people in the child's environment, making them feel encouraged and capable in spite of or despite them having made that mistake. And that happens over a long period of time. And what that serves really to do is provide an an environment where the individual grows into learning that devaluing someone in a relationship is the way that we love people, right? Right? I know that some people grow up in achievement-based households, if you can relate to this, where, you know, if you've, if you earned an achievement that your parents through their lens feel um, is like th- the measure of success, then they will be all about you, right? Like getting a hundred on a test or, you know, making the team or, you know, whatever other sort of success achievement um, that the definition that you that the parents have come up with. You know, in in that household, the person with hypersensitivity or, or hyperbolic temperament may have this tendency to achieve, but not for themselves, but because they want their parents to think that they're to conceptualize them as a good person, because that's the only time maybe where they're getting that sort of attention. And then if they don't make the mark Or if their parents, they have trauma, or if their parents are intensely emotional and, you know, aren't able to provide them with a stable household, then maybe they start becoming devalued, feeling like nothing they can do is right. That if they have to do everything that they're told perfectly, and even when they get there, it's not going to be enough. They begin to internalize this idea of devaluing, over-exaggerating their own negative qualities because they're learning in the environment that they live in that there's not really anything they can do to be a better, to be better, to be a better person, to be a better child, to be a better son, daughter, you know, just in general, right? And so when you grow up being devalued, right, like how about helicopter parenting is another example really briefly here, I can think of in my own childhood, I was, you know, anytime I tried to do something, I would be told it wasn't the right way or it wasn't her way, right? My mother's way. And so over time, I just stopped having motivation to do anything because I figured I was just a failure anyway. So why would I even try? So I never really gave any effort to things because I had just been devalued over and over and over again with like, simple things like cooking or like writing my name, right? It was never enough. So when you devalue someone over a long period of time, that's what really you learn that love is. So I, you know, I get that devaluing and idealizing people are also defense mechanisms. You know, I wonder how many of you have grown up in an environment where your parents idealized and devalued you. And is it something that you're doing now as a defense mechanism and as something you've gained sort of from this intergenerational trauma? And how are those two things different for you? Right. This isn't something I can sort of give you an answer to. I really just want to get you thinking about what it really means to go back and forth between idealizing and devaluing someone. You can have that definition, but think about why, why, why maybe would you have developed this pattern? And what do you want love of your partner to look like? Right? That's very important to think about. So when I was going through this process of learning how not to devalue people, one of the things that I had to do was to force myself to reprogram my mind by changing the way I saw all people. Because splitting and devaluing isn't something that just happens with people, right? It also happens with products and television shows and, you know, anything where there's an obstacle, it doesn't feel good immediately. It's not as amazing and great and wonderful as it once was. And so I kept thinking, man, I can't seem to generalize this skill. What else can I do? And one of the things that I wanted to share with you today as another approach or perspective around not devaluing the people that you're in relationship with, as well as yourself, is, you know, you can start looking broader, right? A lot of work in therapy and coaching is about looking at the self. I want you to look outwardly and look at the core belief that you hold about the world around you. A lot of the times people with BPD, you know, they'll have that like, I hate people or people can't be trusted or all people hate me, those core beliefs. And with that, remember your brain much like a computer program, will organize all of this input from the environment into, you know, sort of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that align with that core belief. So if that's what you think and feel, in other words, you're going to be searching for evidence and you're hypersensitive, so you'll become hypervigilant to any signs of rejection of the person not feeling like you're good enough, right? So one of the things I was able to do in my recovery is to buy into the idea that changing the core belief from I hate people to I love people would provide me with a better life. And it it worked, right? So one of the things that, you know, they talk about, I'm reading these textbooks that I had, you know, a long time ago when I was in my doctoral program. And, you know, some of the things that are said about the borderline brain are harsh, but very true, right? It's like basically... You know the the borderline brain is paradoxical and spasmodic. So paradoxical and spasmodic. This is how this textbook defines it, right? So spasmodic is emotional and impulsive, like a, a spasm, right? And a paradox, meaning right? Like it's it's ultimately just maladaptive. Right? It says, having failed to develop a clear and stable sense of personal values and identity, persons with a borderline personality style are easily drawn into principles and activities of people to whom they turn for protection and validation. Right. So. It's it's. Something that you really want to think about and, and be aware of in your life is like the, the core beliefs that you have are the things that keep the disorder functioning. So if you keep believing all people are going to hurt you and really not looking at learning how to trust others and stepping out of your comfort zone and redefining your core beliefs, rewording them, finding evidence to negate those, those automatic thoughts of like, he didn't text me back, so he definitely hates me. Right. If you don't do that actively, then the disorder, the disordered thoughts and the disorder itself and all of its dysfunction is going to be pretty stable in your life. You might chip away at some aspects of it, but it's still gonna really haunt you as, as a chaotic way of living because, you know, at any moment in time, you know, the brain that believes that all people hurt you, all people leave, and the world can't be trusted, you know, at any moment in time, even on a good day is going to quickly flip that switch because your brain is designed to protect you, right? Also, you know, think about this. If you want people not to leave you, don't you have to act in such a way where they wouldn't? And so that was something that I really like puzzled myself with. I thought, man, you're so worried about being left, but yet you do all these things, and they are things that are socially inappropriate. So if you get past the fact that it feels bad that you're socially inappropriate, because it does, it feels awful to hear that. But I had to get I had to get past it. I had to get through that because that didn't matter that it felt awful. Everything that I was going through was a feeling that was intense. So at some point, I had to let go of that and I had to move past it. And I had to figure out what was I willing to give to my mission in recovery. And then I thought, okay, well, if, if living this way ensures that people reject and leave me and behaving this way, rather versus living, right, then I have to think about what makes me want to be around another person. So what are the things that make me want to be around another person? Positive energy, safety, when they're honest, when they're transparent when they don't engage in guilt-tripping or, like, sort of force me into their choices when they have good boundaries. Those are the things that make me want to stay around the person. They make me want to call them back, hang out with them, be in a relationship with them. So I just thought, like, logically, I could just practice doing those things. And it might not feel natural at first. It definitely felt, like, weird and, like, I was faking it. I remember, like, sitting around and visualizing that Jay would have happiness in his life. And then all the while thinking like, what about me? So I had to battle and practice and I had to work on being consistent in the person that I was becoming. And that was hard. But, you know, one of the things that I did is I, I adopted a new core belief. I love people. All people deserve love. All people are doing the best they can. And every time I felt my brain being pulled back to that old computer program of I hate people, I would pull myself back and go back to the I love people, and what are all of the things that loving people means, and how can that bring people closer to me? In the end, it worked. Because me saying I love people means I can forgive people more easily, because I understand that all people make mistakes. I make mistakes. I make mistakes in scheduling sometimes. I make mistakes on, you know, emails on Sometimes. I know someone told me that I confused um, basic B for a Karen on an episode. I made a mistake. Awesome. I make mistakes. Someone told me I say the word compass wrong. It should be compass. I'm pretty sure that's a, an accent type thing from the area of the world that I'm from. But, you know, all these things. So, I, you know, I think, okay, yeah, I, I make mistakes. And for all of those mistakes I made, I hope that, you know, people who are listening to me, people who are in relationship with me, who work with me, that they'll forgive me. I want that for them. So I'm going to willingly offer that to other people. If you make a mistake, awesome, let's move past it. Just do better next time. I forgive you. And doing that really cultivated an environment where people want to be around me because they feel safe with me. And the more people felt safe with me, the more reinforced and externally validated the socially normal behavior became. Because I chose to change my core belief. So I wasn't looking for people to hurt me anymore. I was still hypervigilant. I'm hyperbolic. I'll say it. I am. So I was hypervigilantly watching for people to love me and hypervigilantly scanning my behavior to make sure that I was offering love to other people through forgiveness, through being positive, not complaining all the time, through... Uh, texting people and connecting with them, calling people back, celebrating people's birthdays, um, thinking of other people, by letting people go ahead of me in line, making eye contact with people, learning how to communicate better, changing my body language and studying body language so that when I was in a social situation, my arms weren't crossed in front of my chest and I wasn't looking at the ground, I wanted people to feel like they could approach me. So I had to study these things. I had to learn all of these things and replacing those behaviors and being hypervigilant to the all people are doing the best they can in life. People are going to hurt me. I can get through it. I'm going to give love and that will get, keep people around me. It, it worked. And if you think for yourself, all of the people in your life who've, you've, who you've felt safe and stable with and who you don't want to leave, it's those people. So you have to realize and begin to develop the level of self-awareness that's required to understand that staying in a space of being like, oh man, I I'm an awful person then. It's all me. It's all my fault. And I deserve nothing. And you know, staying in that space, it it doesn't do a whole lot for your recovery. Life does have obstacles and feels bad but there is a way for you to begin to learn to enhance your self-regulation skills, to enhance your ability to see people for who they are and to see when they're choosing to love you, you can do it. It just takes that, that sort of shift for you to say, okay, it's not that I hate all people or all people are horrible. It's actually like I love people and I want people to have a good life. And even if that means that I have to be the one to set better boundaries and I have to be the one to give good energy. I'm okay with that self-sacrifice because love is self-sacrificial. Because humility and gratitude are required in successful relationships. Because relationships aren't a one-way street, they're a two-way street that includes the relationship with yourself. And so I had to learn to do that. So if you change your core belief, I want you to change all of your actions and thoughts to align with that. And anytime your brain is trying to shift back to that old paradigm of polarization and chaos and pain, pull it back and practice it and be consistent with it. All right, everybody, I'm going to answer a Q&A and then we'll wrap up for the week. Okay, so one of the most common questions I'm asked is actually by the individual in recovery from BPD. The people that are in relationships with them are often worried for their well-being. And as they try to climb the recovery ladder, things can get icky and difficult because the person that they're in relationship with, you know, hasn't always done the work that's required to grow with their partner or loved one with BPD. And when that occurs, you know, they end up only honoring the BPD brain limitations instead of honoring the person, honoring and encouraging the person's capabilities, and it can be frustrating. So it's a common question, you you know, that I get from people who are in recovery, like, how do I get my person to catch up with me? And, you know, it's important to understand that, you know, and for your partner, your loved one, everyone has to really be under this realization that when you're trying something you are brand new at, I mean, look at our episode today. It's brand new for you to think, I love all people. All people are doing the best they can, and I'm just going to act in such a way that will bring people close to me. Like, that's brand new. It's going to feel weird, fake. It's hard, heavy. And, and that goes for anything that you've never been able to do before. So you're going to be bad at it at first. And the people who love you, they have to grow too because they need to pay attention to all of the things you're doing to try. And then they have to be willing to have patience and to offer you a lot of space to make attempts. That's something huge that Jay provided me with. He provided me with attempts. When you get to a new rung, you have to figure out who you are, and it's hard. It's really unforgiving, because the people around you, they're already in their own stories, and they assume that they are already in yours, which is true, but... You know, people assume that you were already on that rung and that you've been there a long time. So that makes it hard, right? Because you've just climbed there and you're going to make mistakes. But your partner's like, oh, yeah, you should be there. You should have been there. So once you're not, get, you know, once you make a mistake or you slip up, the partner has to be willing to, to you know, look for the trying and to really see it and even, you know, I know I say, you know, you don't get rewards for normal behavior, that's true, but if your partner is trying to do this with you and they're in it with you, they could also turn to you and acknowledge your effort, right? Because we always, in relationships, we always want to honor the person's capability and not peg them or limit them into their limitation. I don't know how many times I've heard someone say, like, I, they keep blaming my BVD, but it's not that. And I, you know, listen to both sides and you go through the process of figuring out whether or not that, you know, the story that the person with BPD has created is from an emotion or whether it's based in truth. And, you know, oftentimes as the person grows, it is based in truth. It's actually the the loved one who's stuck and saying, ooh, that's BPD or you're limited or you can't do that or, you know. They've set very rigid boundaries that they're not willing to even budge on even as the person grows. So then you have a situation where this person with BPD is trying so hard to just separate from the diagnosis, climbing that ladder, doing brave and courageous things that are foreign to them. They're, they're learning how to live in the world of a person who's likely either neurodivergent in a different way or neurotypical, right? not hyperbolic, let's say. And, you know, that's that's a big deal, you know, for anyone to have to, to walk this path is a big deal, you know, so I would think that the gift that you can give back to your partner or your loved one is, you know, do your own work to let go of the resentment. I know how many times I've heard from partners, like, I don't have resentment. I don't know how you wouldn't have resentment. I just don't understand how you wouldn't have resentment because the individual with BPD is is idealizing and devaluing you, is you know, sometimes pulling you into the narratives when they have that break in reality during those emotionally intense episodes. All of that, it does, it does, you know, lead for most to resentment or at least the need for someone to help talk them through it, right? It's important. Another question that I wanted to kind of touch upon that fits in this category is, is about teenagers or very young adults who have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. For younger teens who have BPD, let's say like 13, 14, 15, you know, all through if they're still in the home and they're not in school or if they had to leave school and they're in the home, you know, it's it's important to understand that the thing that that person needs is a stable relationship. They don't need, you know, a lot of, they don't... They might need a residential treatment program. I don't want to put my foot in my mouth here, okay? I'm saying after they've become emotionally stable and not engaging in suicidal ideation, of course, right? Then they need an adult in their life to provide a stable relationship with good boundaries and unconditional love and to teach them that relationships aren't polarized and how to regulate their emotion. It's a lot of work. But, you know, I've had a lot of people reach out wanting me to help with their teenagers or their you know the young adults that they have in their home and you know it's it's this is something that they need you to do so the answer to whether or not we work with teens is we work with parents who are you know wanting to be the corrective relationship for their teen I will talk with a teen with a parent but working exclusively with a teenager and as being an outsider when the family isn't involved it goes back to that first question right how are you going to know? what your teen is sharing in therapy. Like think about 13, 14 years old. Four years ago, your child was 10, okay? So like it's important to understand that there's something there that, that they need that you can give them because you're with them every day, day in and day out. And you giving it to them means there was, there's someone who didn't give up on them. So something to think about is like, you know, what can you do and are you willing and what are you willing to give up? if your mission is to help your child recover and have a good life. And those are really difficult questions, um, but I wanted to put that out there. So remember, if anyone wants to schedule with me, can go right to our website at SkeetersStrength.com, and you can click on my scheduling calendar. Jay is available at J-A-Y at SkeeterStrength.com. You can send him over an email to schedule with him. And he will be having a men's group. And keep sending emails if you're interested in another group. I'm going to have another one coming up here in a few months. So I'll see you next week for another episode of From Borderline to Beautiful. Okay, thanks for listening. That was From Borderline to Beautiful, a production of Skeeter's Strength Mindset Coaching Systems. We help frustrated individuals, resentful couples, and disconnected families navigate through tough times. Visit us on the web at SkeetersStrength.com. If you like this show, remember, you can hear it on Anchor or Apple Podcasts or Pocket Cast or any app you use to listen to podcasts. Subscribe to get a new episode every Monday. Next time on the show, we're going to continue our eating disorder series. If you want to get in touch, you can leave me a voice message. Some of you had some comments and questions from last episode, so let's hear them. I'd love to hear whatever questions you have too. Just download that Anchor mobile app, search for From Borderline to Beautiful, and tap the message button to send me a voice message. So, if you like this podcast, not only can you download that Anchor app, but you can help us get this message out to so many more people. Head over to Apple and offer us that five-star rating and let me know what you're thinking about some of our material. The more stars and higher rating we get, the more people will have access to From Borderline to Beautiful. Hope and help for individuals with BPD.